1: We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the Atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives.
0: Okay. Hey, Shiloh. Thanks for having Christopher come and cover for me last week. Thanks, Chris. It's having a good time in Florida. but uh, So, <laughs> I listened to your guys' podcast uh, that you did and I kept like wanting to comment <laughs> because you're know, like oh yeah I have something to say about that oh I'm just listening to it <laughs> but um, you know the topic we're getting on today is actually really closely tied with what you guys were talking about last time so I think it kind of flows into it pretty well and so um it was a good primer for me thinking about those sort of things and as I came into these sections um it really kind of opened up my mind to some stuff that I hadn't quite considered before. So um, here we get into, we're doing sections uh, 125 through 128 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And we have some, some various revelations about gathering, and that seems to kind of be the theme here. So contextually, Joseph Smith, he's out of Liberty Jail. Obviously, he's back in Nauvoo. And from time to time, he's being accused and there's charges out for him and, and legally, but then also extra legally, there's people that are, um, are after him for various reasons, you know, in, the, in, at the time and, and what he's talking about, he, um, he doesn't, obviously at, at this point, the, uh, the doctrine of, uh, pearl marriage isn't very public. Um, but going back in the historical record at this time, you can see that, that does account for some of the animosity going on right now. There's other stuff going on as well, but uh, because that wasn't uh, out and and publicly known, it was more still a a pretty secretive type of thing. Then, you know, it's not widely known as to necessarily why Joseph is, is being pursued by some um, for that purpose. Um, You know, it's, I guess sort of whispered about, <laughs> but but not publicly accepted as as one of the reasons for people being upset with him. So anyway, he's he's a little bit on the run, so to speak, or in hiding. And some of some of what's going on is uh, he's writing these letters back to the church. So these are his epistles, so to speak. I think these are kind of chosen out. I'm sure there's more than this, but these were chosen because they had some particular doctrines that were significant in the development of the church and temple worship and so forth. And so these letters were chosen to be included in the Doctrine and Covenants for that significance. This is where uh, we are introduced scripturally to the doctrine of the baptism for the dead, at least in a Latter-day Saint context. So, even though this practice and ordinance has developed quite a bit since even uh, this time, this is a new thing for the saints. It's a pretty big deal. it kind of causes what you what has been termed a revival at the time of the saints. They get all really excited about this and are all going to go out there and perform this ordinance and and uh seem to be doing it wrong at first, and then Joseph Smith comes back and says, "No, no, no, you have to do it this way and and then you know he's constantly giving him additional instruction uh before he finally says oh um actually you you can't just go in the river and do it at all we have to do it in the temple so um again this is a developing type of mode for the saints but it's a very powerful one uh again instituted at this time that then finds its way into all the other ordinances of the temple so we end up not just doing baptisms for the dead but The ordinances of the temple get performed on behalf of the dead as proxy for all the other other ordinances. So this is where the concept of that proxy comes into being in Latter-day Saint doctrine. As we we go through these sections here, Joseph Smith is is writing to the saints. He's kind of explaining his situation um, and then giving them instructions. He's very excited about this. And I think a lot of that excitement you know, really does bleed over to the Saints and they, and they catch up on that. So we're going to read some of the reactions that they have and, and so forth. But um, starting off in, in Section 125, the Saints had uh, purchased lands in Nauvoo Commerce, which is the Illinois side of the Mississippi. But there was also some lands purchased on the Iowa side. The issue with the lands that were purchased on the Iowa side is that it wasn't clear that the person they purchased them from actually owned them and had a right to sell them. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so, what ends up happening is kind of a dubious ownership of, of these lands. And it actually ended up causing some financial problems as well. But there nev- nothing really ever, not much really ever comes of that in terms of church settlement. There are people that live there and in in this section, they're said they're going to name it Zarahemla. It never really becomes anything close to what Nauvoo ever became Um, and just doesn't have the time to develop in that way. You know there weren't there weren't bridges at the time that could span the Mississippi. Everything was done by ferry. so it was it's very difficult to really have a coherent uh, society and and city on both sides of this really wide river. There's only a couple years after this, and then a large uh, body of the saints ends up uh, moving west, so that's kind of abandoned. Here we have this concept of, of gathering, right? And, and this is a recurring theme in the early church and, and then has been very much doctrinized and, and codified for the church up until today as well. This concept of gathering the actual practice of it has has evolved and, and changed somewhat over time. At this point, the gathering is get everybody into these areas, into these cities. This is causing some anxiety for people because this was sort of what was done in Kirtland, right? And then this was what was done in Jackson County. And then this is what was done in Caldwell County. All these calls to always gather. And every time they gathered as a big group of a community – there were always caused problems. They felt like they were persecuted. And so there was really a lot of discussion at this time about whether they should really gather or whether they should not be dispersed into smaller communities all over the place so that people would leave them alone because they didn't have any particular community power. But still, Joseph is calling them to gather. Um, and and the Lord wants them to come and build a temple together and be instructed. I can see the utility here because, again, at this point, these doctrines are still being developed. This identity is still being forged. And if you have the people that are still very disparate, it's very difficult to forge that that united identity of a church that then can persist as, as a community and has persisted for for so long after that. Um, you keep people dispersed, and um, especially in a day when communication was was not so good, it's very difficult to to forge again that u- unique identity and uh, common doctrine and so forth among the saints. So this concept of gathering becomes very important at this time, even if it does end up ca- always causing them some problems. Yeah, I should stop there. You should talk now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was enjoying what you had to say. <laughs> you no, know, I, I think the the gathering idea there is is really great because it should just in context because they've been tossed around so much, right? Because it, they got kicked out of Jackson, they got kicked out of Clay, they got kicked out of Kirtland, they got kicked out of Caldwell, they got kicked out of Davies, got kicked out of Missouri. So now they're finally here in Nauvoo. Now, and you know, as we've talked about before, they weren't. Completely innocent from having you know the effects of that. That doesn't mean to say that it was justified. There were so many extra legal and illegal acts performed against the saints, but the justification for it was had some merit, right? So it's it's not that these persecutions happened in a vacuum. And then, but at every turn, they're always trying to like. retrench and to regather back together. Right. So, and so that gathering you're right is really important. And, and even today, the, the mode of communication of being able to gather is still really important. I mean, that's why there's hot topics in politics to that going on right now about who gets to have a Twitter account and who gets to have a Facebook account and, and what's, ca- what's Facebook's culpability right now for J- the January 6th insurrection, right? Because these are the modes of communication that gather people together and so what did the saints have and how did their gatherings work together and what were the important methods by which they gathered together and what were the narratives and the ideas and the reason that kept those that community together um when there was so much political upheaval going on social upheaval going on and there were people who were on the highest echelons of the church who were leaving the church who were claiming some pretty interesting things that had some pretty interesting basis and merit for it going on and so There were just, there was, there's a lot of moving parts to this discussion. And I don't think a lot of the time we get down into recognizing just how uh, uncertain their future seemed so often along the way. And, and just that gathering, I liked how you brought up the, the concept of gathering as a, as a, a means of bringing that community together and having that communication there and the importance of it. Here in sections 127 and 128, these are not revelations. you know these are letters from Joseph to the saints. And mm-hmm. I think in them being letters, there's a lot of clues that we get in these sections that we don't get in the revelations and we've talked about this before about what was Joseph in the revelation and what was God. And trying to kind of piece out and find out what was Joseph, you know, is this God cracking, pouring through the cracks or is this Joseph? You know, we talked a little bit about that with, uh, with 121 and 123. What, what did Joseph need to heal from the traumas that Joseph needed? And maybe those, those revelations were, were really tailored to his needs. You know, we didn't get a whole lot of, uh, of all the revelations at 121 and 123 that were given. We only got a little bit there about what uh, I believe Orson Pratt and Brigham Young ended up deeming to you know appropriate to put into sections one twenty one through one twenty three, and so. But here in these sections, we're getting a lot more of the flavor of Joseph, and uh, like for instance, uh, here in verse one of section one twenty seven, he he goes into hiding because he says, "I have thought it expedient." Well, that's really different language than what we're usually. Mm-hmm. What we're, we're accustomed to in these sections because it's always in the name of God, right? Always in the name of the Lord. This is always, the Lord's always speaking about himself in third person, which is really an interesting way of being able to give these revelations. And then he switches to first person a lot. But I have thought it expedient. And then in verse two, this is fascinating. He says, as for the perils which I am called to pass through, they seem but a small thing to me, as the envy and wrath of man have been my common lot all the days of my life. And for what cause it seems mysterious. This is a really interesting thing for Joseph. Joseph, obviously we know down in Missouri. July The July 4th sermon that Sidney Rigdon gave that was so bombastic that even Brigham Young and the later apostles were like, yeah, that was the speech that probably really catalyzed the Missourians against us and caused the extermination order. So even later on, they're admitting this. Joseph helped co-author it. He helped disseminate it. He thought it was a really good idea to do this. And to, and to, and to put out all these materials all over and share through their Missourian neighbors, Joseph thought this was a great idea. But then on the backside, he's like, "Why is everybody upset with us?" <laughs> right. And so there's yeah. a little bit of this going on. And I, I don't think as a as a religious community, we really grapple with this. It, we we tend to put Joseph in such a an absolute perfected stance that nothing he ever did. Merited any animosity. There was, it was always this conspiracy against him. And I think in a lot of ways, his personality, he may not have even been aware of what he was doing or how people, he may have been completely sideswiped and, and blindsided by the Missourian animosity for the Salt Sermon and for the July 4th um, sermons that happened in 1838. But then he comes along here and he's like, for what cause? It seems mysterious. But here's what I think is really interesting is how he follows up this statement about this, his common lot for what seems mysterious. Cause he writes in 1838 in the account that we have of the Joseph Smith history in the end of the Pearl of Great Price that he writes in 1838. Um, that's where, you know, that's the, the first vision story we have. And he talks about the persecutions he seen back then and about how shocked he was about the persecutions back then. So this this is kind of an MO that Joseph has is he's he's like, I don't know why everybody dislikes me so much. And then we, you know, there, but there's clues along the way of saying uh, nothing I think Joseph did merited the kind of pushback that Joseph had. But there's always these kinds of people who there's little things that they do that cause some of the problems that that they end up experiencing, and I think in a lot of ways, not every way, but at least in some subtle ways, Joseph is like this. And so, but I, but what I find is fascinating is the, his ability to cope with, and then to create meaning and modality in his own life. So, for instance. He says, as the envy and wrath of man have been common a common lot all the days of my life, and for what cause it seems mysterious, unless I was ordained from before the foundation of the world for some good end or bad, as you may choose to call it, judge ye yourselves, God knoweth these things, whether it be good or bad. I think this is a really fascinating way to put this. If you can imagine the stream of consciousness that he's in, this unless I was ordained, it's like he's trying to make sense of his life experience. And as he's developing this Mormon cosmology from like 1838 until you know 1841, especially as he's really getting involved in the, in building this Mormon cosmology, this concept of being ordained from the foundation of the world was was harkens a lot back to the the Abraham you know the Book of Abraham. And then he turns to whether or not that's good or bad, you know, whatever you choose to call it, I'll just let you choose to call it whatever God thinks. And yeah. so this kind of self-awareness, I, I think is really fat. It, it's, it's a paradox. This is, this is what makes Joseph Smith such, a, such a, such a hard figure to, to try An to nail down. Sometimes. Yeah. yeah. Because sometimes he seems so clueless as to his self-awareness. And then it, because he's actively engaged and he does, he makes a lot of foibles and he, and he's hot tempered a lot of the time. He's quick to anchor a lot, but he's also insanely loyal. And he's usually very quick to forgive if someone actually comes up and asks for forgiveness. So he's he's got these, sometimes these contradicting virtues <laughs> and, and behaviors. Yeah. And and so here, but he's like, judge for yourself. God knoweth these things, whether it be good or bad. But nevertheless, deep water is what I want to swim in. It has become second nature to me. And I feel like Paul to glory and tribulation. I think that kind of self-awareness, though, is, is really important in, in kind of beginning to understand Joseph. But as we've talked about with Latter-day Contemplation with, you know, with Riley and Christopher, and when I was over, when I was, uh, recording with Riley, um, when we very first started, one of the things we talked about is this idea of creating our own contention or, or creating our own, uh, problems as it were. And sometimes we can get into narratives and ways of being and ways of thinking and just ways of projecting and seeing the world that we kind of throw out self-fulfilling prophecy. And then at that point, we end up seeing that the pain that we feel or the struggle itself, I've called i have called this the, the trap of the struggle, that a lot of the times we think that because we're struggling, that becomes indicative that we're following the right path. And and I think a little at least a little bit, Joseph gets used to this and kind of uses that as his own meaning. That as he's struggling, that actually kind of shows that he's on the right path. So in this, I'm want to swim in deep waters. Th- th- this is how we you typically cope with we we have an unaddressed part of ourself that sometimes we throw out in front of us that causes problems and then we use that as the meaning that what we're doing is right. And, and as it's I,
0: supposed to be this way.
1: Yeah. It's supposed to be this way. This is my validation that this is the right path. And mm-hmm. I, I think that way of thinking is largely what led to a lot of problems in Missouri is because that was kind of the standard demo, not just for Joseph, but, you know, as I've read other, other people's, uh, journals and other, and other people's lives and, and books on the subject, it seems to be that this was, and this is just standard human nature. You know, I've, I can't, I've lost, I have countless friends, even myself included, and people in my life that this was a standard way of being, that sometimes we project out in front of us and we create our own problems. And then the struggle, we find meaning in the struggle that because we had these problems and we overcame them, then that shows that we're on the right path. And so I see a lot of that going with Joseph, but, at, but, but here's what I think is really cool about him. Is that he's always turning to God to try to He always keeps circling back to God and, and coming back to that. And I think regardless of whether or not we create our own problems or whether or not life just happens, you know this is one of those things that everything happens for a reason, and usually that it's because we're dumb and makes bad choices. And <laughs> whether or not it's life is just being life or we're making bad choices, or whatever it is. What I think this shows is that Joseph is returning back over and over and over again to the Lord as a way of making that kind of the center of his modality in in finding peace and assurance and in finding a way forward because as we're, as we'll see in the end of 128 he gets really excited about this baptisms for the dead and what that what he's becoming aware of in creating that modality and as you and I talked earlier you brought up um the fact that this was kind of a rejuvenating doctrine that kind of revitalized the saints again
0: almost ironically right you know being baptism for the dead you know revitalized. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Yeah, well right but is, is isn't that the point it's almost like yeah. that that is the point so yeah it's 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 very fascinating what you were
0: talking about there with with verse 2 of section 127 is is very interesting to me the fact here that he talks about how all these quote-unquote bad things have happened to him he doesn't he doesn't directly label them as such. And then he says here, unless I was ordained from before the foundation of the world to some good end. And and just like you were saying, it's like all of these bad things that have happened to me are evidence that I'm on the right path, right? To some good end. And and people are like, well, these are all bad things. like how could that be good? He says, well, or bad as you may choose to call it. And I think he's kind of coming back to this realization, like you said, coming back to God. And saying, you know what, I I don't know whether to call the things that have happened to me good or bad. I can't call them good or bad. They just are. And it must be the way that God wants it to be. And so whether it's good or bad, God is going to judge that. I just know that I'm swimming in deep water, right? (laughs) And deep water can be good or bad, right? You know, If you've got to float a lot of stuff, you need deep water for it. So I, I just think that's that's an interesting perspective there that that he kind of steps back from judging his circumstances to say, you know what, I, I don't know whether my circumstances are good or bad. I've come to to just accept them. You know, they just they just are what they are, and I'm I'm willing to, at least in this moment, accept reality for what it is. And and obviously as a human that always it oscillates right we'll come to moments where we're we're willing to just accept reality for what it is and then tomorrow someone cuts us off and and it's like you know they're the devil <laughs> so <laughs> it, it, it these kinds of things happen
1: yeah i don't know how to follow that up but yeah
0: <laughs> so um here as he continues in 127 i i saw something that was an interesting segue into this concept of the baptism for the dead. So here he's he starts introducing this idea, um, or or the idea is that he's already introduced it to the saints. You know, we, we get this letter here that he tells them, oh, they already know about it, so they've already been doing it, and he's just giving him further instruction. So essentially, in the Doctrine and Covenants, we don't have the letter that's originally the instruction. Or if it was an, an in-place uh, or an in-person instruction. As he says later in here that he wanted to, you know, be there in person to instruct them further on this. But here we get in verse four an interesting segue into the concept of of recording. So, and again, verily thus saith the Lord, let the work of my temple and all the works which I have appointed unto you be continued on and not cease and let your diligence and your perseverance and patience in your works be redoubled. And you shall in no wise lose your reward, saith the Lord of hosts. And if they persecute you, so persecuted they the prophets and righteous men that were before you. For all this, there is a reward in heaven. This is a bit of a reformulation of the last beatitude, right? That blessed are you if you're persecuted for righteousness sakes, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. That's basically, this is a reformulation of that. What's interesting to me about that is that the the idea, the very idea of recording these ordinances now becomes a mode by which heaven and earth are united, and this is how he gets into this. He says, Concerning your dead, when any of you are baptized for your dead, there will there, let there be a recorder, and let him eyewitness of your baptisms. Let him hear with his ears, that he may testify of a truth, saith the Lord. That in all your recordings it may be recorded in heaven. Whatsoever you bind on earth may be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you loose on earth may be loosed in heaven. So, Here, we kind of get introduced to the concept that it's not just the ordinance itself of baptism that's the mode of experiencing God or entering into the kingdom of heaven, right? It's the recording of this act and the witnessing of this act that in and of themselves are also modes for experiencing God and experiencing the kingdom of heaven. And so that's a very interesting uh, way of of positing an administrative task, like recording something as being a a spiritual exercise that actually um, brings one into a relationship with the divine. He kind of recognizes that this is a bit of an odd thing to assert, so he kind of says later, you know, may, you may see, you may seem to think, uh, or think that it's a strange doctrine, but this is an important thing. And then he goes on to explain why he thinks that way. But, uh, it kind of stood out to me this time that again, this just the very concept of recording the ordinance in and of itself kind of becomes an ordinance, right? Becomes a mode by which a person experiences. A relationship with God, and then establishes this kingdom of heaven on earth, the the meeting of heaven and earth in the kingdom of God. So uh, this again at this time this gets the saints really excited about this and and how they're going to experience um, this new mode, right? This they they know what baptism is, but all of a sudden baptism gets extended. Into a way uh, of experiencing God, um, uniting with these their ancestors, right, in a way that they really hadn't ever considered before. Um, it opens up their minds to to a realization of something they hadn't before. So here's some of the accounts. There's there's several. Um, That come from from people that experience this, but this is uh, Phoebe Woodruff, who's Wilford Woodruff's wife. So Phoebe Woodruff was living near Nauvoo when Joseph Smith began teaching about baptism for the dead. She wrote about it to her husband Wilford, who was serving a mission in England. She says, "Brother Joseph." has learned by revelation that those in this church may be baptized for any of their relatives who are dead and had not a privilege of hearing the gospel, even for their children, parents, brothers, sisters, grandparents, uncles, and aunts. As soon as they are baptized for their friends, they are released from prison, and they can claim them in the resurrection and bring them into the celestial kingdom. This doctrine is cordially received by the Church, and they are going forward in multitudes. Some are going to be baptized as many as sixteen times in one day. Wilford Woodruff later said of this principle, The moment I heard of it, my soul leaped with joy. I went forward and was baptized for all my dead relatives I could think of. I felt to say hallelujah when the revelation came forth revealing to us baptism for the dead. I felt that we had a right to rejoice in the blessings of heaven. This does kind of cause this this revival among the saints that um, really puts them back in touch with the, uh, the the roots of their religion. Kind of breathes more life, new life into the, these modes that they had, um, and energizes them to to do the work. And then then as this concept's introduced, it it um, leads into Joseph Smith. Then starts. Starts explaining to them that this ordinance actually should be done in the temple. So it's a way for him to first galvanize um, the uh, the spiritual um, uh, energy, so to speak, or or um, will of the saints, and then channel it into that that mode of the temple and say, okay this is something that is very important to you you've realized it you've experienced this as a mode of experiencing god let's take this and then put it in the sacred space of the temple to elevate it even further and so uh that that's a very interesting thing to do um to to take something that that they're experiencing and then And then uh, further sanctify it by moving it into a designated sacred space. And that was really interesting in light of the discussion you had with Christopher last week, I thought, because, you know, you guys brought up the concept of not just sacred space, but sacred time. And the fact that an ordinance is something that you, you perform from start to finish and... Uh, you're, you're experiencing it in time. It's not just going to a space and thinking, you're actually doing something. So it's a dedication of time. That's where I see that, that sort of that sacred time being brought into the conversation here because you're offering that time as part of the sacrifice. You're making that time holy that you're putting into it, not just the space that you built, right? Um, and we see that, um, you know, if a baptism is something quick, but we, we see that even further pronounced in the following ordinances that are revealed and then performed in the temple, because especially like initiatory and endowment, these are, are much lengthier types of ordinances that um depending on what temple they're done in and, and the group size and everything, can take a couple hours, right? Just to do one name for one person. And so this becomes, again, not just a, a concept of a sacred space, but also of a sacred time. That time is set apart to the Lord and then to that person, that specific person. And the what becomes very central and important to these ordinances of the temple are the names of the people. And because the names are so important and absolutely required to even do the ordinance, they are like central to the ordinance itself. That means that we then have to go and do that family history work, right? To find the names of these people, because those are what are the central part of the ordinance that is spoken in the ordinance are the names of these people. So that got me remembering an article that I had read years ago and i went to search for it and i couldn't find it um but the concept in the article was the idea of of how the temple it's the idea that temple work is a sort of response to the collectivism that so often creeps up in the world um So we can look over history and see how people get treated collectively. Um, You have war, um, you have genocides, all these horrible things that happen to people in mass. Um, And so atrocities and, and war. And this results in sort of a collective death. And the temple kind of responds to that uh, as the antithesis of a collective death it's an individual symbolic resurrection and so we we symbolize resurrection in baptism by going down into the font and jo- and joseph talks about this in section 128 even the symbolism of baptism itself he brings this up as an important point to the idea of baptism for the dead he says you know this very this very ordinance is symbolizing someone dying and being reborn. So it totally makes sense that we would do this for our dead in proxy for them because they are dead. And so we're symbolizing their rebirth. And so uh, again, going back to this idea that the temple is sort of the, the religious mode response to the idea of collective death, and that is of individual resurrection as symbolized by Performing these ordinances on an individual level, and with the idea that speaking the name of the person is akin to resurrecting them. Okay, now this is a very strong uh, symbol within LDS liturgy, but it goes back way back to Egyptian times. And this idea very well could have been planted. In Joseph's mind, by his exposure to uh, Egyptian religious practice, and the idea is that it is that the resurrection, um, a person is resurrected by speaking their name, and so this is what happens. In the temple, we go through all these ordinances and we speak these people's name because then they are receiving what they need in order to progress and be resurrected and and have that relationship with God, and then it brings us into that that same relationship there. Um, so as I was searching for this article that said this <laughs> and thinking about this concept, I came across another article that was written back in two thousand four, and it was an article. That was talking about, um, well, it, the context of it was the Iraq War, and all of the the awful things that were happening in Iraq um, after the U.S. invasion, and it was talking about how speaking the names of people who had died was this way to humanize, to rehumanize, to reanimate these people who had, who had died in this war that was in such a dehumanizing way. They they then talked about it in the context of other mass casualties. So, you know, either from, from, uh, accidents or, or, you know, different things. So this brought, this comes up when uh, we talk about nine 11 as well. It's, uh, they still have, I think, sort of a ceremony where they say the names of those people right and this uh we we do this with like war memorials like there's the vietnam war memorial we have the people's names written on the memorial this was really not a thing um almost at all before world war one in fact a lot of graves especially for for casualties of war weren't even marked now this was largely like a logistical problem like you know you you didn't know what everybody was named. Dog tags weren't a thing, right? But the, the fact is, it's more of a, a modern innovation to seek out and try to name everybody that's killed in the war. Um, I wanted to read a few things from the article that I found, and I thought maybe we could post a link to it or something in the in the episode notes. Here's some of the things I found in the article that were really interesting. It says, Naming names after an event with mass casualties is a way of pausing to say, wait, to a world in a hurry. And I thought that was interesting in the context of we've talked about a lot how how we are, are so often in a hurry and uh, the Lord wants us to slow down and, and experience things in the moment, right? So going on in the article, a way of acknowledging in the midst of vast abstractions, cold from numbers and graphs and tallies, that the most important number ought to be one. What's that quote from Stalin, you know, like one death is a tragedy, but a million is a statistic, right? Right. And and it's the idea here that we we do, we come back to that individual, right? We don't go in the temple and say, okay, we're gonna do an ordinance for, um, you know, I'm doing an ordinance for 50 people, right? They're all done individually, one at a time, with that person's name, because that person is an individual. Another part from the article, The act of reading aloud the names of the dead, the late 20th century's contribution to that individualizing impulse. Stepping out of that article for a second. The, one of the premises of the article is that this idea of speaking the names of people is sort of a, a a modern innovation. Like I said, you know, only since really World War I have we tried to 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 collect names of people who who died in wars and tried to keep a record of that. Um, but Joseph Smith started teaching the Saints here to go and find those and um, find their ancestors. Um, not particular to war, obviously, and and that their names were, were an important part of, of this process. So going back to the article. Reading aloud the names of the dead is even more emotionally charged than the act of silently reading inscriptions on a monument. It adds a temporal extension. It takes a place in time. You can see a memorial in one moment in time. There is this extra dimension, an oral one, he says. So this this again reminded me of what you and Christopher were talking about last week with the sacred space and the sacred time, that speaking someone's name actually is uh, something that takes time to do. Um, You're not just thinking about it or not just reading it, but like you're speaking it out loud and it exists in time, but then it also exists um, in sound, like uh, we have to hear it. That reminded me then again of multiple times here in these sections where it talks about the witness, not just seeing the ordinance, but then hearing it as well. And that that seeing and hearing were part of that recording mode, right? So it kind of all fits in with this this concept that the person is symbolically being resurrected, not just in space, because you're there in a sacred space, not just in time, because you're taking the time out of your life to do this and to speak their name and to experience these ordinances, but also you're seeing and hearing, right? So they're being resurrected into all these different dimensions in all these different ways that are sort of Uh, branches of this this mode so another uh, one last part from the article that i thought uh, was pertinent it says such incantatory rituals have the magic of the name as being the person right let's hear that again the magic of the name is the person it's a very old and very deep notion it says Reading aloud names is a public ritual. It's theater. You have to be engaged. So I, I just thought that was interesting here that this, this was almost like from a civic religion point of view, right? They were talking about it in terms of a community, but they also talked about how um, it was a pushback on politics. Because at the time in 2004, this is a very um, very highly politicized, right? The invasion of Iraq. Um, and so that, that bringing up people's names that have died in war was a way of kind of pushing it back against, uh, politics and the state because of, of their, the tools that they used of war to perpetrate these things, the way that you pushed it back against that was to name the people that were killed so that they didn't become a statistic, but that they were an actual real person that was a consequence of of the choices that these people had made to, to go to war. So again, the, the idea that the, the name of that person is, is a type of magic, right? <laughs> they say magic, but um, it, you know, in, in our experience, it's a, uh, it's a symbolic way of, of resurrecting that person that gives us a spiritual connection sometimes with them, but certainly with God, as we come to know christ and how it was that that he made a connection with us by being our proxy right one of the parts here in section 128 um, verse 8 it says now the nature of this ordinance consists in the power of the priesthood by the revelation of jesus christ How, in our experiences that that we have with with ordinances or modes of connecting with God, these are how is it that Christ is revealed to us in those things? And I think that there's there's quite a bit that we could look at here in the in terms of of how we treat temple ordinances and the again this concept of speaking names and 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 resurrecting and proxy that reveals to us more about Christ. And and what it means for us to have taken upon ourselves his name. Again, coming back to that name.
1: Yeah, there is so much there that you just talk. about.
0: <laughs> there is. <laughs> no, there's a lot.
1: <laughs> I've been like writing down notes. I'm like, oh, that's good. That's good. That's good. But one of the things I keep coming around and back to is this idea of this synthesis that Joseph is going through. Because he talks about, like, for instance, in section 128 – um, in verse in verse one, he says And now I resume the subject of the baptism for the dead, as that subject seems to occupy my mind, and depress itself upon on my feelings the strongest since I have been pursued by my enemies. So you know th- this is something that he's he's thinking about a lot. He's he's pouring over this, and one of the things that it, historians have talked about Joseph is that he is a product of his time, and certain things will influence what he's thinking about and will kind of will spark ideas and you know and so during this time you know what is it about this name because this seems so otherworldly everything that we're talking about here with this whole new doctrine about the the baptism for the dead and like where is this coming from and he's not even claiming that this is revelation that's coming directly from god because this isn't being given in the voice of god this is given in the voice of him reasoning these things and he's talking about just I've thought these things expedient, and I've been interested in this, and I've had these excited feelings about this, and so I know in my life the difference is when I come across a subject that sparks a question, and then I start following that rabbit trail all the way down, and I, I begin to learn new things, and new things open up for me, versus those moments of spontaneous, what I call revelation for myself, where just... Something that seems to be completely counter my trajectory comes in and kind of takes me from the side. And, and I call those more revelatory moments. But here we are in right as the as section 127 and 128 are given. This is September 1st and September 6th of 1842. And a couple of things are going on in Nauvoo at this time. Number one. Polygamy and plural marriage, and you brought this up before, these things are going, these things are just starting to come on. In fact, Joseph Smith's first plural wife that nobody knows about, not even Emma knows about Joseph's polygamy, um, happens in April of 1841. So more than a year before this. And once it starts, it kind of snowballs and it goes pretty quick. So by this time, Joseph has had quite, probably quite a few wives. And so this thing of, Plural marriage, eternal marriage, um, what they call celestial, you know, the celestial marriages. And of these for eternity sealings are starting to, to coalesce. And if you can have marriage throughout eternity that endures through eternity, and if you do certain things in this life that will be sealed in the next life, we also know that Joseph, uh, the death of Alvin, really, really impacted Joseph pro- probably more than any other thing in his young adult life. And uh, in fact, they noted that that it affected the the family more so than just what you would think a family would grieve for their the loss of the oldest son. He said they grieved more than even that, and so it was it was a really tragic moment, and especially so tragic because you know the minister there it, at his gravesite tells him that he wasn't baptized; he was going to hell. And Joseph then is then later revealed that no, Alvin is Alvin is okay, right? But then now we're starting to say, well, how is that even possible if everyone has to be baptized? And if you can imagine Joseph going through and reading the scriptures, and in 127 he does. He gives us several scriptures. I'm sorry, in 128, he gives us several scriptures that it looks like he's starting to pour over. These are scriptures that are coming to his mind that are giving him ideas. We have we have scriptures and from Revelation, we have script we have the the famous scripture from, what is that, 1 Corinthians, about, uh, 1529, also shall they do which are baptized for the dead, if the dead not rise at all, then why are they then baptized for the dead? Um, and then going back, because even Malachi 10, or the scripture in Malachi there is about the, the hearts of the children to the father and the, and the fathers to the children. This has been really important since the angel Moroni appeared to him, right? And so that's been there. Then he's dealing with this sealing on Earth and sealing in heaven. But this is this isn't connected with polygamy. He's been dealing with this with the plural marriage issue now for at least a full year, if not longer, about this whole this whole sacred sealing moment. And so, now, as he's poring over these scriptures, another really big issue that happens is just a few months before this in April, uh Freemasonry enters Nauvoo, and Joseph is made a master mason so this is another huge issue that Joseph is going through now and and you can tell there there's influences of that because in in masonry, just like the l d s temple it's a drama it it's this spiritual drama that comes in there and in their dra- in in the masonic drama it's about this fictional character named Hiram Abiff who is king solomon's uh, basically he's hired to be the uh, the chief architect for the temple project he's the
0: architect for the temple right
1: and hiram abiff is then approached by two or three people who want hiram to give him the sacred signs and tokens of masonry be- you know the idea is is that ba- anciently that with these guilds, these professions, you know, masons and carpenters and priests, they all had their own stories and they all had their own secret handshakes. They all had their own secret passwords. They all had their own secret signs. And it was usually part of a story that they would enact. And so the idea was, is that since college education and being able to show you my college certificate wasn't a thing, that you would become in and you would, according to the level of, of, uh, proficiency that you would have in your particular guild, you would be taught a particular story with a particular handshake, a particular sign, and that would show your proficiency in that guild. And, and so this is how masonry is built, that all of the degrees of mason are the proficiency that you've had in masonry. And the thing is, is this is how the word priestcraft comes along, because even priests had their own guild, they had their own story, they had their own handshakes, they had their own, their signs, that you never sold these signs and tokens for money because what would happen is that would break apart the professionalism of your guild. Because if all of a sudden people who were not trained in your guild started to have all the secret signs of like a master's degree or a PhD or even a bachelor's degree. And all of a sudden people could just know the story without having to gone through the work of being able to master the craft. Then it weakens the modality of your craft. It weakens the entire structure. Because you need to keep that sacrosanct. You need to keep those secrets secret and those things secret because that protects the integrity of what this, th- this
0: sacred and profane. Yeah.
1: Yeah, the, yeah. And so, yeah. And so this can actually enter into sacred and profane narratives as, as well. But back in anciently, and especially in medieval, these guilds, these secret guilds, especially in uh, medieval Europe it became a very, a very big deal. This is how they were able to keep the integrity of you know, masons and, and as a, as a carpenters and especially craftsmen, metalurgists, they they would have their own stories. And in Masonry, it's a story of Hiram Abiff, who's approached by two people who want Hiram to give him the signs and tokens of a master Mason or of someone of his stature of the head architect and Hiram disagrees and won't allow it. So they kill him. And so part of the reenactment there is that they're trying to bring him back to life. And so, the initiation here is is that he's murdered, but now he's restored to a new state of awareness, and he now be and, and and so the initiate becomes a master mason in the same in the same vein where he stands as Hiram Abiff, coming into a new awareness, a new rebirth and so Joseph has gone through this thing within a few months of this these letters. So the whole concept of rebirth, of coming into a new rebirth, of coming into a new awareness of something, mixed with the scriptures that he's reading, mixed with the concept of you know, of these this plural marriage uh, throughout eternities, mixed with the idea of sealing on earth and sealing in heaven, all of a sudden you can see that there's a lot of layers upon layers upon layers that Joseph is experiencing here that having a specific name and, ha- and the, the importance of a name and speaking your name in masonry is a big deal. You know, the, to be able to have your name attached to this thing is a really big deal in how you're called forward into a new life. And so, a lot of these things are kind of – of a, masonry is an ancient. You know, the oldest records, I believe, and it's been a long time since I've looked at this, but it's like, what, 1300 for – you know, the 13th, 12th century is about as far back of, of masonry as we know – but we begin to see that some of these things that Joseph has are really catalysts of what he's dealing with. And I love there in section 121, he's like, these things, this is a subject that occupies my mind and presses itself upon the feelings and the sh- of my heart, basically. And you can see just how excited he is about this modality. And as you said about how the saints became about this, because there are a few men in the background who are working with Joseph with polygamy. There's a lot of, there's a new Mormon cosmology that's emerging. You have, um, all of the pain that we talked about earlier on about being displaced and the spirit of gathering. And all of a sudden, this new concept of baptisms for the dead becomes a catalyst that synthesize, begins to synthesize a lot of these ideas into one thing that kind of starts to make sense out of the whole thing. So now, we can actually go back to the people we love and it, because there's always this idea in Christianity that if baptism is an absolute necessity and ordinance to be able to get into heaven how do we deal with people who would never have had that opportunity and and is there a just god and so what this does is it breaks breaks open this new modality and this new understanding of god because before then you just think that god was a jerk And he's like, well, that person gets destined for hell. That, And you can begin to see how like Calvin came to Calvin's ideas, that only certain people were destined to and predestined to be in heaven, and the rest were just predestined to be in hell. So it wasn't really anything that you could do for it. But Mormon theology flipped the script on Calvinism, and it was like, no, you can actually work your own way into the grace of God and that was a very strong component um you know John Brooks talks about that in Refiner's Fire about how the this new mormon cosmology really ended up kind of even sidestepping the atonement in some ways that maybe even cr- that uh, modern latter day saints wouldn't be comfortable with and that they they felt that they could very much it, almost like a stairway to heaven and a, a form of alchemy to where they could actually alchemize their own um their own salvation And at least get to a place where you could earn or that that after after all you could do, then is God's grace sufficient for you. But it was very much a ladder that if there is a need for God's grace, it required your own actions and your own actions could get you there. And so there's just a lot of this going on to where when baptism becomes a thing and we realize that God accepts baptism on the other side of the veil, then all of a sudden God's not the jerk that maybe we thought God was before that actually Maybe he does want us to succeed. Maybe he does want everybody to actually get completely united together. And so if you come from a, a, a point of view where there's none of that, where you, there, there's no answer that you have for people who've died and not been baptized. Are they just going to go to hell? But now Joseph comes up with this having been synthesized from so many different layers. And, and I've just brought up a couple of these. Now we're, we, it breaks this open into this new modality of saying, no, God loves all of his children and even in the construct of of baptism and of these ordinances and these rites and their arguable necessity the God saying these are going to be open for everyone now everyone can literally be saved who wants to be saved.
0: Yeah, I mean I see that here um it, it, I was thinking about what you were talking about with the the concept of of introducing this as a way of, of uniting everyone. So here in verse 15, and now my dearly beloved brethren and sisters, let me assure you that these are principles in relation to the dead and the living that cannot be lightly passed over as pertaining to our salvation for their salvation is necessary and essential to our salvation. As Paul says, concerning the fathers that they without us cannot be made perfect. Neither can we without our dead be made perfect. You know, it, it kind of ties this concept in that, it, that he's saying, okay um, you can be saved but the way that you do it is by making sure everyone else is too <laughs> and um, it, it does bring up a lot of questions you know with like uh, Mormon theology and what what the place of the atonement and and faith and works and is and in that and and that dance has been going on for for decades and you know exactly where to put our finger on it um, is probably difficult but you're uh, you were talking earlier about the synth- the synthesis that he's creating because of all of these different experiences and understandings that he's coming to. And I see that as, you know, especially in this letters, we're getting all of his thoughts and musings, but he's he's not um, he's n- not at least in these letters able to quite articulate, exactly what the core of these revelations are he's receiving he's rather articulating what it what it is that's that's coming into his consciousness about how to construct a mode that um that sort of conforms to these deeper principle revelations experiences that he's having so what I mean by that is that there, there's some principle or concept that he's feeling uh and and having a revelation about that that pertains to the idea of uniting the human family right that seems to be at the at the core of this he he talks about the summum bonum here the whole subject that's lying before us consists in obtaining the powers of the holy priesthood and so he he's bringing this this like you said, the synthesis—he's bringing in this priesthood that he's been talking about for a long time. He's bringing in this uh, this work for the dead, the the te- the concept of the temple, and a lot of that is now being united under this principle of, of baptism for the dead. He sees this as a mode by which he can express all of these other revelations that he's having that can't be articulated in in a linguistic way they can only be articulated through an experience and the way that you have this experience of of these principles and and understandings that he's having from God is by experiencing these ordinances by going through these ordinances then as you do this you'll be able to come to a better understanding of what it is that that I'm trying to tell you and I can't tell you any other way but to To give you an experience and have you go through that experience, right? And this is exactly what happens with the endowment, right? Like he's, he's got all these things that he wants to teach. And then like you were saying, he, he has, uh, he experiences, uh, all of the things of free of masonry, of Freemasonry. And then he goes to Brigham Young and basically says, Hey, um, there's all of these things that we're trying to present. You could use this or something like it as a mode to present those things. And so it, it becomes the vehicle by which he tries to deliver these principles and understandings and concepts. Um, but it's not the thing, right? You know, he's, he's trying to convey these things that are, are, aren't, he can't articulate any other way
1: yeah yeah I think that's a, I think that's a good way of being able to do that it's it's this wonderful evolution and I don't think a lot of the times we really pay attention enough to recognize history is easy to re to be read backwards It doesn't mean we we read it well it's just it's easier that way and especially with a lot of our religious traditions it's that this is the way that it has evolved in our lifetime so we I think a lot of the times we think that we kind of project the way it is now back to then <laughs>
0: <Sure>. <laughs> as if this yeah, was the yeah. way
1: that the, you know that they understood it uh and you know we could even rationalize it and say you know what it, it's been an ongoing you know is it president uh nelson who said that you know this is an ongoing restoration right so it's even mm-hmm. what joseph smith revealed uh I, I don't know how many latter-day saints would even recognize the church in joseph smith's day even in 1842 sure. nauvoo sure. Because they they are so radically just coming up with these new ideas and experiencing these new ideas and the synthesis of how these are all coming to be, because you know Joseph has been told to build the house, you know to build the temple, to build God's house there, and to say, hey, well, I'm going to reveal to you these new these ordinances.
0: Yeah, it's not really even clear, especially to the saints at this time, what it's really for. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, like they just keep saying build it, and I'm gonna you know reveal stuff to it, and they're just like a. Oh. Okay, we're gonna rebuild it. You know, I'm sure Joseph Smith had a little bit of an idea, but but all of that is still developing at this time, what this temple is even for.
1: Yeah. And so we we've had the call to be able to build the the endowment house or the Nauvoo to build the Nauvoo house and to have that be a temporary endowment house until the temple can be built because God recognizes that they're in their poverty, he says. And so we can see that, but what's in the endowment house and what are they actually doing? And it's, this is different now than what is being done in the temple, right? Because it's not a full four part drama. Cause now we have the full four part drama. We got the baptism, you know, the initiatory and uh, the endowment and the ceiling. So, so there, there's that standard four part drama. You, you can add a, a, another act with the second anointing, you know, and whatever that becomes for, for sure. leaders of the church, but. So, that that's the standard four-part drama, and that doesn't really get developed in Joseph's day. Mm-hmm. In fact, they don't right. open up the Nauvoo Temple until after Joseph is dead. So, Joseph doesn't actually even get to see the temple endowment as we know it.
0: Yeah, a lot of this modality really isn't fleshed out by Joseph Smith. It's, this is a very Brigham Young thing.
1: Yeah. So So, more of what we know about the temple endowment, it has far more Brigham Young's fingerprint on it than it does even Joseph's. And, and Brigham Young even said he had a dream of seeing Joseph where Joseph said it was incomplete and, and Brigham's gotta forward this on and to create, and create a new modality and to continue to work this out. And then we ended up getting Adam Godfrey. I don't
0: think he used the word modality. (laughs) (laughs)
1: All right. He didn't say the word modality, but we still ended up getting Adam God theory. But that, you know, that's a whole different other conversation. (laughs) So there was that moment. And then everyone's like, yeah, let's not continue with that. So then we, you know, they change it and and it, and it's amended and it continues even in our own day. it, It continues to be amended. And there are central, there are central uh, rights and tokens that we just don't have anymore. That was present twenty, th- you know, that was, that was my math thirty years ago, and so it is, and it's going to continue to change, and that's okay because the modality modality is not, it's not, uh,
0: it's not the thing.
1: It, yeah, it's not the thing. It, it's it's always symbolic of the it's thing. The vehicle. Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of saying it and and so i think a lot of the times we tend to make the temple the thing in itself and like we talked about last week though is that no the temple is not it it, it represents what is it and what it is is us and we need to and we need to remember that, that these are symbolic of us and so when we go to the temple and when we we participate in those to train our minds to be able to thinking what is this about myself that i'm learning that is, is, is being instructed at this particular, and when we see the temple as a four-part drama, when we see it as, it's, it's not just four distinct ordinances, but it's one ordinance done on four different, in, in four different acts of a, of a, of a play. And we participate in that, and that's representative of us. Then it takes on a, a different meaning. But right now, in reading these with baptisms for the dead they 're just barely beginning to open up this modality. They haven 't even no idea what this is going to mean later on. But for right now they 're super excited about it because they come to find out hey god 's not as big of a jerk as we thought he was. Well, <laughs> maybe they didn 't think he was a jerk, but at least <laughs> this idea that maybe some people could were thrust down to hell had been that had been very prevalent in American Christianity and Christianity in general going back into Europe. Joseph, this one thing, just like the three degrees of glory that we have earlier on, right? That completely opens up this brand new idea of heaven that, oh, look, not everyone, no one goes to hell, right? There's not a hell in the Mormon, in the Mormon construct of eternity that only maybe a handful of very specific people go to this outer darkness, but like everyone else other than like these 12 or 15 or 20 people end up, end up going to heaven. And just a different degree of heaven, and that just and as we said before, this was such a new idea of the of a merciful God to their day that people literally left the church because they couldn't stand that God would be that merciful. and so you you begin to see here is that this idea of baptisms for the dead is a modality of of grace, of mercy, of compassion, of healing. you you can begin to see how People who had, even if they had had loved ones who had been baptized in their religion to accept the new evolving idea of Mormon priesthood and priesthood in the the church, that you needed to be baptized by the true and correct authority. So, what does that say for everyone else, even all of your loved ones who were not baptized by the authority? That means that they're condemned, even if they were baptized in their own church. And so, this solves all of that. And it just shows and it kind of expands and makes the conversation bigger than it was before.
0: I mean you were talking about how these these modes are evolving and, and changing as they they come into an understanding of them and how they're going to fit. It's almost it's almost like they are exploring this house, right? Of and and each Room They go into is like this new mode and like, oh, there's another room over here. And it's not like they were dissatisfied with the parts they'd already seen, but it was just like, oh, there's another room, you know, <laughs> like, and so, oh, there's another way that God is merciful, you know, and so, and, and, and this is, re- his mercy is revealed to us through this mode, right? This is a, another way that God is, is trying to communicate to us the extents of his mercy, and that they're unbounded, right? And and so that happens with uh, baptism for the dead. You know, at first they're going out in the river and they're just you know doing it like crazy. And Joseph Smith says, "Hey, you know, let's let's baptize men for men and women for women, and let's have a recorder." And so he starts he starts sort of uh, flushing it out, so to speak. Right? It's it's very. Um, it's very vague it's cloud, right? <laughs> he starts defining it a little more how it, how it's supposed to work and, and, and how we do this in an orderly way and, and direct us towards the way that we want to understand this. This happens um, even in even a longer stretch of, of time with the concept of sealing because sealing <laughs> um, when it's first sort of introduced um, it, Joseph doesn't give a whole lot of instruction on what this thing is. And and it's it seems like he doesn't really even know, right? You know, like sealing is like, okay, uh, let's just seal everybody to everybody, right? Oh, well, we want to seal. I want to be sealed to um, somebody who's righteous. So I'm going to seal myself to one of the apostles. And so sealing just becomes this um, method by which people just connect themselves to another righteous person. And that's the way that it's kind of initially first practiced. Um, that is what some of the um, some of the concept of the plural wives happens under. It's not the total of the story, obviously. there's more going on there. But the concept of sealing um, really as it's initially, um, introduced and practiced by the saints is very different from the way that we see it today, and it 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 becomes it changes slightly over time. There's a big change that happens with Wilfred Woodruff, and um, it it really fits into this concept of, of the work for the dead and and people being baptized for their ancestors because before Wilfred Woodruff sealing was still a pretty haphazard type of thing like people would just go in and they'd be like okay i want to be sealed to joseph smith seal me to joseph smith or, or i want to be sealed to this apostle so seal me to this apostle and it was kind of their the way that they um connected their families was through uh some prominent church leader and Wilfred Rudroff came and said, hey, uh, the Lord tells me that's not the right way to do it. Actually, what we're supposed to do is not seal yourself to somebody just because they're a church leader or something. Because um, people thought that um, sealing, the way that they practiced this mode was you seal yourself to a righteous person and that that somehow like adds to your righteousness or connects you. To God closer because you're sealed to that that righteous person, and so that's why they were doing it again with the leaders of the church because they thought they were more righteous. But Wil- Wilford Woodruff comes out and he says, no, 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 no that's that's not the that's not what sealing really is is supposed to be. Sealing is about families, and we're supposed to connect this chain all the way back to Adam. So actually, the Saints didn't have a concept of of sealing families all the way back through the generations far back beyond the restoration of the church until Wilford Woodruff. And he said, that's when you need to start doing that. So then they started doing family history that was much farther back than they ever had before and started doing that type of temple work and sealing back that way. Um, I learned this because uh, I was reading in my great 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 grandfather's journal and he talked about when wilford woodruff introduced this concept and how it just all of a sudden made so much more sense to them he's like i don't know why i'd never thought of that before of course that's a better way to do it and it makes more sense and it and it does develop that mode in the direction of the lord saying no you know it Sealing isn't about just sealing yourself to a righteous person. That doesn't give any more righteousness. The idea is that we want to unite the whole human family. So you're going to go back and you're going to find your ancestors forever. And we're going to bring everybody together. And everybody's going to be saved because they're all my children. And and that development of that mode just kind of opened that concept up, right? It was like uh, you were exploring that room a little bit more and understanding through that mode a little bit more of who god was and and how he viewed his children so
1: yeah that really is a fascinating conversation because of the evolution and what that meant that to be born under the covenant didn't actually happen until wilford Woodruff. they were they just yeah. they searched around and they got to actually got to choose like who they wanted to be for their for their uh <laughs> their parent right and yeah, yeah, exactly. and who they wanted yeah. to be sealed to and they they started jockeying for positions and in fact when he re, when he revealed this new way of being sealed there were a lot of apostles who were like no I don't like that I I don't want to be sealed to my earthly father <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah they're like no my father's a wicked man yeah he's a wicked
1: weak- <laughs> but it was like it doesn't matter <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it's it's absolutely fascinating what uh what became of all that and and how that actually evolved and and how it's been handed down to us and and how we and how we enjoy it nowadays. So it just just goes to show again that just the way that we have it was not though necessarily the way that they understood it then. And so the more we know we're going to find out that oh a lot of these ideas have evolved and maybe they've evolved I mean for instance Brigham Young I I brought it up Brigham Brigham <laughs> I can talk Brigham Young's Adam God theory that was introduced into the temple. And this was a thing that a lot of people have tried to sweep away under the rug and, and kind of dismiss, but you know, it was a little bit more prolific than a lot of people want to admit that it was. And, and so that theory was in the temple, it was in the temple rituals in the temple rites. It was in the temple covenants and it's not, and it changed and it changed after he died. And they said, well, we're going to go a different direction with this. And so it's to show grace for each generation and how they're coming to God and to realize that how we enjoy things now, the general principles were kind of remain the same in that we have temples. We believe temples function in a particular way in connecting people together. But even that evolved. There's always going to be an evolution as to how this works. So and I think it's just- it's, Well, there's always
0: somewhat of a cultural context to every mode, right? I mean- uh, a mode, a lot of, is going to derive at least some of its meaning from the cultural understanding and context of the person. So, um, it it's only going to be uh, useful and as good as far as it um, not conforms to the culture, but at least like considers it in in the way that it conveys the message, in the way that it conveys the opportunity for a connection with God, right? You know, it, it's not beholden to culture, but it also can't be blind to it, so.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, this is this is not a, a problem of what we're addressing either, because, right. I mean, it, it's the point. It's the very point. It's, it's the entire yeah, reason. Yeah,
0: that's exactly the point, right.
1: <laughs> it's the whole reason why they, the justification and the reason are given for why we need modern day prophets. Because we can't use... The mode of a hundred years ago, if it doesn't work in our modern construct and needs for today. So it changes to match the needs for the day. And I think this is gonna be more and more of an important understanding to have, especially in a day and age when fundamentalism is becoming more and more of a problem in the church. And 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 what that we mean and by
0: culture's moving very fast.
1: Yeah, it does. There, you know, things change fast. Yeah. And our understandings of things change fast. I mean, just think about what the Joseph Smith papers has done to a lot of our history, like with the, with the United order and how that sent a whole bunch of people into a tailspin. Um, because if that can't be trusted, you know, it's a very entrenched doctrine and understanding or what we thought was a doctrine and come to find out, Oh, it's based on not solid history that we found out was not solid history. So we, we amend ourselves and move on. But that's, that's what fundamentalism is is not that you adhere to fundamentals of the gospel that's not what fundamentalism is fundamentalism is it's this idea that when you when you have an initial doctrine you have an initial uh, experience right and you record it in a particular way um events in and of themselves are meaningless until we add meaning and purpose and identity and all sorts of stories to them. And it's, and so each event as it happens sends a ripple effect down through the generations. And each generation reinvents itself about how it identifies and finds meaning in the event in history. And so when a historian is being a good historian, and they go back into history and they find documents and they find things that amend the story and say, Hey, this story did not happen like what we thought the story happened like. And here's why. Then at that point, then we have to look at the story differently. But from a person who's not a fundamentalist, they're going to be like, Oh, okay. Well, cool. We, we, we did, we thought this thing and now we think this other thing. But what a fundamentalist does is, is, by changing the story, you also change the meaning of the ripples that have gone down through the generations. And if you place your truthiness, I'm going to borrow an old Steve Colbert uh, <laughs> phrase. <laughs> if you borrow your truthiness and you found your truthiness on the ripples as opposed to be uh, the original event and you allow that the original event can change into be according to whatever, that event may change the more we base our testimonies on the ripples and the of, of meaning that have derived from the event as opposed to having a heart of repentance that will always allow us to to see god differently that at that point what happens is we end up fighting against progress we end up doubling down and making dogma an idol to us and we think we are actually become um Being loyal to the original, and that's what fundamental is, is it's loyalty to the old way of thinking. And it's the loyalty to the old way of thinking as if the old way was the most pure way, as if the way Joseph thought was the most pure thing that it could have been. Now, don't get me wrong, Joseph was awesome, but even Joseph realized that there was going to be a lot of stuff that came after Joseph. And so it's recognizing that this is a forward momentum and that we will always move forward. Every religious movement, every religious denomination has to move forward. And if it keeps on going back to the original as if the original was the most pure, then number one, it suffers from a, a nostalgia that never existed in the first place. And it shows that you're probably taking more of the your current context and then reprint projecting that back onto history than you think you you then you actually recognize you're doing and then you you have to double down into dogma and then you have to retrench because you don't allow yourself to be open for other sources to help refine what that original event was now, it is, when, when that original event comes out and we have now more sources or greater knowledge, we can ask better questions about how to identify these moments and find meaning from these moments. The meaning is going to change. But that, you know, that's, uh, Christopher and I had a, a, a an episode for Latter-day Contemplation here not too long ago where we talked about meaning. And we talked about um stories. And it was specifically on stories that the stories we tell ourselves, uh, a lot of the times we don't live in reality. We live in our stories about reality. And when our stories about reality are based on the ripples of meaning that come from the events, we're in a really shaky place, religiously speaking. And the more the culture doubles down using their stories and basing it on the ripples of meaning as opposed to actually finding a way to connect with God directly – that's what's going to cause a really big problem for the. It, we're already seeing this problem already um, in, in a lot of groups um, in the church and in a lot of uh, fundamentalist. Uh, what will end up being fundamentalist breakoffs. I already know in Utah there are already groups that are starting to break off because they think that polygamy was the most pure way to live. So they're going to go live polygamy or they think the law of consecration is the most pure way to live. So they're going to go live in compounds where they just practice the law of consecration. And that's what that kind of thinking ends up doing is because then you want to live the pure way of living, and the pure way of living is your interpretation of how you think it was supposed to have been based on the ripples of meaning and not necessarily the thing in and of itself. Anyway, it becomes very highly problematic. So, history is difficult.
0: <laughs> it's almost like you study religion or something. So. <laughs>
1: it's a, it's an issue i see so so hopefully someone can glean something from that if you have any if you have any questions or comments about it definitely <laughs> drop by let us know but uh, hey ben did you have anything else to say here about uh about these sections
0: well I, there's there's a ton of stuff in 128 but i think really we i i feel like i kind of got to the core of what was standing out to me uh what was significant in these sections like i said there's other stuff that i marked up um, I know you had some stuff to say about verse 24, about the refiner's fire and stuff, if if you want to go into that. If not, then we can save it for another time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I I, th- I just think it's interesting about, yeah, Christ being called the refiner's fire and the fuller soap, just in that we've had conversations before about what that means. So, you know, the fuller soap was made from ash. It was made from the ash of the leftover olive trees. And then we get into the olive tree allegories about how the wicked are supposedly the, the bad branches that are kept away and burned and the ash and the allegories always stop with the wicked being burned but what the allegories what the people would have known at the time was that that ash was really really important to these trees the health of these trees because it was the ash that got incorporated back into the soil that trapped the the water in in, next to the roots and if you didn't have that ash to be able to help Trap that water in near, near the roots, then it would evaporate, and the tree would die. And it also helped to to nourish it and to fertilize it. Well, yeah, when the vineyards burned, it never—you don't completely kill the
0: trees. What it is is you. I mean, if you're talking about an olive vineyard, is that the branches or the the part that's above the ground often will become burned or destroyed, but the roots stay good, and the shoots come back up right and so the, the things aren't actually destroyed or killed they are purified or purged or however you know refined as as it talks about here in this in an alchemical sense right so if we take that back to individuals it's not like the lord is just like killing people off you know in in like mass uh destruction genocide <laughs> yeah it's it's This is happening on an individual basis, which actually takes us back to our our discussion about the temple, right? And how the temple is actually a response to the mass casualty events of human history as an individual, rather than mass casualty, an individual resurrection. And that's what the Lord does. He goes to us individually and refines us, purifies us, and resurrects us, right? And what is burned and destroyed are not... a whole entire people but rather the parts of them that aren't their true self the parts of them that don't know god and what's left is what knows god
1: yeah i love that i don't have anything to add more than that i think it's a good place to end (laughs) okay awesome well thank you everybody for listening and sticking around and again if you have any comments thoughts anything um if if you think this would be good to uh, for someone to listen to please share it and uh, we always love hearing from you i so i uh, have officially gotten off facebook i've been on facebook for about 6 weeks and man what a difference in my life
0: <laughs> man congratulations
1: yeah that's it's something else I, I feel like i'm out <laughs> of an a loop achievement. It really is. I feel like I should get a medal for something, for, for it or something. But, uh, you
0: go to Facebook, ex Facebook users anonymous.
1: That's right. That's right. And, <laughs> and so I, I'm out of the loop. I'm usually like really, really in the loop and in the know about how these trends are going and what's happening. And, and I just feel a little bit out of loops. So and now I'm just in my history books and in my religious theory books. So I feel like I, 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 I feel like if I could make a Facebook post like 200 years ago, I'd be like, Good to go. <laughs> I'd be very current and modern, but right now I don't feel very current and modern, but, uh, but Lindsay's doing a really good job in being able to monitor the the P studies and posting for P studies. And so I, I get uh, the podcast out to her and she, she's posting everything there. So thanks to her for everything that she does. And and to Kyle and Catherine for editing, you are rock stars. Without you, this would not be possible. So thank you, thank you again. Yeah, absolutely. So until next week, I'm Shiloh Logan. I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you everybody for listening.